todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today's guest is one of my favorite writers and a good friend of mine, Stacey Keith. I initially connected with her after reading her excellent autobiography, Stripped Down, A Naked Memoir, and we'll be talking about that as well as her current and upcoming projects. Welcome, Stacy. It's really good to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And as I mentioned, I had reached out to you after reading your memoir, and it was just a blind buy on Amazon because um, I was about to write my own Hollywood memoir, and I kind of wanted to see what else was out there in terms of the same era and experiences. Um, And I was really kind of blown away by the fact that your mom and my mom knew some of the same people and you and I have so many things in common. Um, So that was really fun for me. And I reached out to you and we've been friends ever since. Um, But now I know that writing a memoir is a lot trickier than people might think. So what was the impetus for you to write yours? And how did you approach the process of actually taking the plunge and doing it? Yeah, see, that's a really good question. And you're right. It is just not easy to write a memoir. It, you know, I knew I'd had some unusual experiences. And I did want to get them down before I completely forgot what happened. Uh, but the book, at least in the beginning when I was writing it, really wasn't coming together for me. So it was entertaining, but it really wasn't much more than that. So I had this little come to Jesus with myself. And I realized that I wasn't telling the absolute truth about who I was and what my motives were for winding up on a stripper pole. And you can't do that when you're writing a memoir. You never, never should manipulate or try to manipulate people's opinions of you. It's balls first or not at all. So whether people liked me or hated me or or were perfectly indifferent, I had to put it out there in a real way. I had to force myself to write a second draft of the memoir with the intention of whitewashing nothing. And not only was it much, a much better read, but it also struck a chord with a lot of women who have since written to say, hey, this was my experience too, not as a stripper in a men's magazine model, but as a woman growing up. And that made me really happy. So what, what blows my mind now is the extent to which I was willing to sexually exploit myself 
at that time in my life, it was the only way I knew to get power. And I never really expected to have any for myself, especially since I spent my formative teen years in Texas, which is as toxic a culture of preening masculinity as most people think it is. So now I look at like, let's say the Kardashian women who are even better at sexually exploiting themselves than I was. And I feel a sense of despair that nothing has materially changed for us. Um, you know, if we can only gain money and power uh, by our proximity to men who are willing to give it to us, uh, what is the agency there? The Kardashian women, so, so yeah, so until it no longer really matters what a woman looks like, um, until little girls no longer want to grow up to be models, we're always going to be stuck in the same recidivist bullshit. This is the stuff I think about. I think about it all the time. Well, uh, you know, my dad is a musician and so is yours. Um, so I kind of want to circle around to the rock and roll nightmares aspect of this. But so your mom was also in a rock band in the 70s. And I know you were very young then, but do you remember what it was like? And do you have any recordings of their music? Oh, yeah, I've got a million stories. Um, so anyone like you, like me, who's been in the business or in the peripheries of that business, that story, I mean, God, look at the ones that you've written, incredible. So I'm uh, the daughter of two musicians. I'm the sister of a musician. I'm the niece of a musician and the girlfriend of a musician. My mom had a rock band uh, named Andromeda, and she was gorgeous, my mom. She looked a lot like yours, in fact, really dark, exotic. She played a Hammond B3 organ with a big-ass Leslie speaker, and she was best friends with a famous 60s and 70s actress named Yvette Mignot. And Yvette sponsored the band by renting out this house that was in the foothills of Hollywood in Melrose and Vine area. And Frank Sinatra used to spend his summers there. It was this incredible place. It had a sunken living room that overlooked the Hollywood Bowl. It was about five stories or umpteen bedrooms. And there was this dumb waiter. Oh, wow. Four, right, right. I mean, this is like right straight out of the files, the mixed up files, Mrs basically Frank Weiler stuff. I mean, I was able to squeeze myself into the dumbwaiter and I did for like hours. And that's how I, I knew everything that was going on in that house. I mean, things that I really shouldn't have known at that age. And one of them was that Richie, the bass player, and Brandon, the drummer, who I had a huge big girl crush on, and some other girl I, uh, uh, that I didn't know. I didn't know who this woman was. They were drawing pot leaves over the toaster. And I knew what pot was at four. Uh, just like I knew that Richie kept tabs of acid in a matchbox in the refrigerator. And I knew my mom would hit the roof when I told her what was going on because she had a real hard on for drugs. And I can't blame her, but let's face it, moratoriums on drugs, not really enforceable. So in any event, all three of these uh, people begged me not to tell her, but I kept insisting I would and that they all be in big trouble. You know, it's not even yeah. the world. <laughs> so for two days, they didn't show up for rehearsals. And my mom finally asked me, have you seen Richie and Brandon? And I completely forgot to tell her because I mean, come on, I was four. So that was one story, um, but it was my dad who was the real rock and roll nightmare. I mean, he and my mom split after I was born and I mean, immediately after we just couldn't deal with the whole being a dad thing. And he got into the party scene shortly after that. And I'm talking serious party situation. He and his friend Conrad used to steep tea laced with acid or PCP and then drink it and then play this unlistenable music. And there are a few tapes floating around. I heard them once and said, yeah, that's all right, I'm good. But my poor dad never really had a chance. I mean, here he was, this genius musician who could write symphonic scores without an instrument in the house. And he played everything, he played strings and piano and wind instruments. He had perfect pitch, he had a three octave range. 
but his dad raised the whole family as Pentecostal holy rollers. So instead of listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington, my dad had to play tent revivals in Lee Hole, Oklahoma. Huh. So by 16, he was this ordained minister. He used to go to pizza parlors and yank out the plug to the jukebox and start proselytizing all the godless body saucers. And he had this big Hollywood apostasy, you know, with the drugs and the women and the lifestyle. He started spelling his name Rod with two Bs because God only had one. Huh. So he was a mess. He vandalized himself. And then one night he was high on too many things to list on a toxicology report. He decided to walk the outside railing of the Hollywood Bridge. And he was always doing crazy shit like that. And he was sort of shaking his fist at God in a way, I think, daring him to do something about it. And some people speculate that he jumped. Others like me think he fell. <clears throat> in any event, he went tumbling onto the overpass uh, or the underpass and he crashed onto the hood of a speeding car. And then two weeks later, my cousin Dion, his niece, was at a party. The hostess was telling a story about driving under the Hollywood Bridge and this body coming out of nowhere and falling on her car. Dion told her, oh, hey, that was my uncle Rod. And the hostess was so upset and angry, she threw Dion out of the house. So now my dad has all this posthumous fame as the best of the song poem artists. Um, song poems, so he's like, a, he's got a wiki, this whole thing, this whole, this whole life has sprung up around it that I don't understand. And song poems were these come-ons in the backs of magazines telling people to send in their lyrics and they'd be set to music and then played on the radio. Scribble something brilliant on a napkin five minutes before he went into the recording studio. They'd record it, press it into a vinyl, and then play it on some podunk radio station at two in the morning in places like Wichita, Kansas. My dad wasn't in charge of that. He only wrote the music. But after his death, there was a lot of interest in his work. Uh, there was this PBS special, with a comic strip. I think there was even talk of an off-Broadway off, off play. Um, and to tell you the truth, I don't follow it much because I feel like all they're doing is chasing the phantom. Wow. And um, how old were you when this happened? Two, three. Yeah. And uh, how did that affect your mom? It was about Christmas time. It was December 15th. I remember my mom was on the phone and, you know, you're very prescient when you're small you know things without really having the vocabulary for them and so I knew something was wrong and then she got off the phone and she told me what had happened and I'm not sure that at, even at three I, I understood exactly what death was but I got the idea that I was never going to see him again and I had very mixed feelings about my father as it was and I had very vivid memories of my father who was definitely a part of my life not always in the best possible way uh, and so I, I was, I remember wandering around and, and looking at the Christmas cards that were on tables and on the refrigerator. And this thought just kept persistent thought kept going through my mind that I would never see him again, that there were all these people in the world and that not one of them was my dad. Um, well, I mean, I feel like that sort of the musician uh, influence of your parents has seeped into your soul and your, you said you're one of your siblings as a musician and your significant other, John, whose uh, music okay. I've been listening to. It's jazz, not rock, though. Can you tell us a little bit about um, him and what his music is like and how that uh, complements you in your own creative endeavors? We really do. It works. I mean, I really feel like words are just a different uh, manifestation of music. I feel like it comes from the same gene pool. I feel like it comes from the same part of the brain. Uh, my, my brother is Ellery Eslin, he's a famous tenor saxophonist who lives in New York and he plays very freeform avant-garde jazz. 
um, there's a great story there. I'll tell you briefly before I talk about John. So he had, Ellery had invited me to go with him to Wilshofen, which is in Bavaria. I was like 17, 18 years old. And he was playing in a band called Four Horns and What? Four Horn Players and a Drum Kit. And you can imagine how that sounded to somebody who had grown up on bubblegum pop. Yeah. And so I show up and I'm freaked out by being in Germany anyway, because that's kind of a heavy scene. And I'm listening to this band and he comes up to me and he's all swaggery and pleased with himself. And he's like, you know, the first time, because we're, we're step siblings, first time that I've, he was able to really show me what he was capable of. And he goes, well, what did you think? And I burst into tears and I said, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> My poor brother, he was totally cool because he is cool. But um, he's, yeah, he's just an amazing guy. We have an incredible connection. And then, it, oddly enough, my boyfriend, uh, John B. Arnold, uh, is true music royalty. His grandfather was the American songwriter and movie actor, Hoagie Carmichael, who wrote Georgia On My Mind, This of You, Skylark, Heart and Soul, and it's like a slew of other famous standards. So he played uh, the character of Cricket in To Have and Have Not, which is one of my favorite movies, and Uncle Butch in The Best Years of Our Lives, which continues to blow me away, that movie, because it was so ahead of its time. Uh, but John, my boyfriend, was born on the wrong side of the blanket. His mother wanted a child. She was having a dalliance with Hoagie Carmichael's son, Hoagie Carmichael Jr. She found herself pregnant, and she decided to go through with it on her own, which was pretty ballsy back then. So she didn't really let John know anything about his paternal heritage until he was in his early teens. And by then, he was already something of a prodigy on the drums himself. So I imagine there was a part of him that maybe wasn't totally surprised. I mean, there was, I'm sure that there was a part of him who wasn't really that surprised. And a, a few years later, uh, though standing in line at the school cafeteria, he read in Downbeat magazine that Hoagie Carmichael Sr., his grandfather, had died. And that's how he found out about it. But he's been a jazz drummer for most of his life. He's uh, played with damn near everyone, Chet Baker, um, Gary Thomas, recently just got back from a gig in Poland with Adam Bronchek, who was there their their favorite son over there an incredible saxophone player and he also has this real love for electronic music so his latest album techna is this fascinating hybrid of electronic music riffs combined with acoustical drum and piano improvisation sort of sort of like electronic uh, jazz in a sense and it has this drive and this really wild hypnotic beat and this concussive energy that i've never heard in any music before and the first time he played it for me, I cried. I was really overwhelmed. Well, you've always been a writer, but you've also dabbled in exotic dancing and topless <laughs> modeling, hence the title of your memoir, which we touched on a little bit early. Um, and the memoir does have a double meaning. Um, how have those experiences informed you as a writer? Um, not only the, the biting essays that you do today, but in your fiction as well. One of the reasons I started dancing was because I needed a job that provided me with a good income, but also enough unstructured time to write. And you're a writer and you know that you have to have that unstructured time. I mean, at least I do. You may be better at writing on a deadline than I am, but I need lots of space. And I truly believe that you either have the compulsion to write or you don't. You and I both have that compulsion to write. And I really believe that ultimately that compulsion is more important than talent. So being an artist, any kind of an artist will kick your ass. And if you don't have the compulsion to do your art, you will never have what it takes to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous bullshit that artists uh -huh. do every day. 
You just won't survive. You know that. You, you and I both know that. So I was always book smart growing up, but being a nerd on a stripper pole really rounded out my education um, because that's where I gained street knowledge. I never really belonged though. I mean, I had no trouble being sexy for money, uh, but being sexual for money was a line I never crossed. I had my dad as a shining example of what drugs will get you. So I never did them. And I mean, never, not even one bong grip. And that helped me keep my head straight. Uh, but it also uh, helped to keep me from ever needing the lifestyle and the money to support a habit. And yet, you know, night after night, the same guys or types of guys would come into the club. And that was a real mystery to me. I mean, for less money, they could have gone to any number of rub and tug places in Houston, but they didn't. And they came to the strip clubs. And in retrospect, I truly believe that they were addicted to yearning. They wanted the dream of maybe someday. I mean, maybe the rub and tug places were just a little too real. And then as far as my fighting prose goes, uh, that's my shown rage. I really hate injustice, and I mean any injustice. And that probably sounds like a lot of virtue signaling, but it's not to me. It's something I was born with, and it's not something I'm necessarily proud of or I've tried to cultivate. Um, it's just there, like, I don't know, fallen arches or a hairy back. I mean, frankly, it's kind of a curse because there's so much inhumanity in this world. And I, all I have to really beat it back with is my pen, which is a blunt weapon at best. Oh, well, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now um, where, you know, a cappuccino is a, a really cool endeavor that you're doing and uh, tell us a little bit about that and what, um, again, what was the impetus of starting something like that? Because it is a huge undertaking. It is. It really, it, it, it's, it's, it kicks my ass every week. <laughs> I have to come <laughs> up with something Monday through Thursday and uh, it really kicks my ass. I have wide ranging interests. So that makes it easy for me to sort of glom on to things that are of interest to me. Uh, I really try to keep it as pure as I can in the sense that I'm not really writing the market. I'm just doing the things that I enjoy doing because you and I both write the market and that can be a real drag after a while. <clears throat> and it's nice to be able to just kind of do what you want to do. Uh, but, you know, as a freelance writer and a blogger and a novelist, I, I can't afford to live in the United States. And that's sort of the bottom line of, of why I'm taking the tax that I'm taking. Um, so we live, you know, John and I live in the Umbrian part of Italy and it's all grapevines and olive groves. It's beautiful. We pay about 400 US dollars uh, for a big apartment with 17th century frescoes on the ceiling. And that's a huge departure from where I live in the United States, which was in Houston, Texas. I paid $1,600 a month for the shithole apartment behind a mall so my poor daughter could go to a decent school. Wow, the yeah. lack of affordable housing is killing the arts. And that was one of the uh, most seen, most viewed, most shared, most viral of the cappuccinos that I wrote. It was called just that, lack of affordable housing is killing the arts. And I think that there is definitely a consensus opinion there. And I don't know how anybody does it. I mean, in the US, we can't even get universal health care. So when you've been in Europe for a while and you see how badly Americans are getting screwed and they don't even know it, uh, it's been a real eye-opening, mind-bending experience here in Italy, especially since COVID. Yeah, I feel like you're able to see uh, different sides of the same situation being in Europe now and having lived in the U.S. and also all of the professions that you've had. Um, and, you know, in spite of the fact that some of the subject matter you've tackled is not always uh, light and, and airy, 
I do feel like comedy can be found in some of the most difficult situations and you really shine through with that in your writing. Whatever you write, it always makes me laugh, but I do feel kind of bad for laughing when I read about no. you modeling <laughs> no, for us. How did we can't laugh at it? What's the point? I mean, what uh, are we going to do? I mean, that that was really a crazy story. Um, for those that don't know, Russ Meyer uh, was a cult director of the 1970s, um, sort of famously breast obsessed. Uh, he did movies like Faster, Faster, Pussycat, Kill, Kill, and um, Mud Honey, I think was another one that he did. That, I mean, he did quite a few that churned out sort of the exploitation grindhouse movies. Um, and that was before your time, of course, but he was still trying to keep his career going in the 90s. And I, I believe that's when you worked with him. Can you kind of give us a Cliff's Notes version of that nightmare job of yours? <laughs> it, was, it was a nightmare for sure. So the minute Russ Meyer picked me up at the airport in Palm Springs to do our first shoot, uh, he stood there with his camera in hand and those caterpillar eyebrows working up and down and he crowed, look at the Guernseys on you. <laughs> and that's what they were to him. They were Guernseys, jerseys, milkmaid, spun bags. I mean, Freud would have had a field day with that guy. So the minute we got back to his house, and it was admittedly a gorgeous house, I decided to jump in the shower. And when I opened the cupboard to look for a towel, there were hundreds of Massengill douche boxes in there. And I mean hundreds. Huh. So like a fool, I asked Russ, Russ, whose they were? And he said in his big booming voice, oh, they're from Mounds. And he meant Melissa Mounds, his girlfriend at the time, because all of the 90s men magazines models, uh, magazine models had these awful cornball names that were references to their, quote, assets. So there was like Melissa Mounds and Pandora Peaks and Tracy Tops. So Russ said, Mounds knows she needs to be douched and spread eagle on the bed when I come home from work. And wow. I said, well, then why don't you just get up a blow-up doll or get a blow-up doll? And Russ did not like that so much. So he and, and film critic, Roger, uh, what was his name? Roger Oh, Ebert. Roger Ebert. Ebert, that's the one, had written this screenplay called The Bra of God. And Russ was planning to cast me as God's busty wife. And I'm just so glad that that movie never got made because I am almost certain that, that he and I would have come to blows at some point. I did not dig working with him. So Playboy liked my test shots and ordered a series and Russ rented an RV and a crew, and we were trundling off to the Salton Sea, which is this big biohazardous waste dump out in the middle of the California desert. It's a strangely beautiful place, but I had to get a tetanus shot first because everything there is rusty and dangerous. And then about 10 miles outside of Palm Springs, I started getting these grinding menstrual cramps. And, you know, I could have handled that. But the problem was that I tend to instantly put on like five pounds. I just blow up in water weight when I get my period. And Hell, Russ didn't even really like vaginas, let alone their natural function. So he freaked out when he saw how huge I'd gotten and insisted we stop and buy diuretics. And I, like a fool, I took these things. So the Salton Sea is maybe 110 degrees in the shade, and I was sweating bullets. And that old son of a bitch had one of his crew members row me out to the middle of the water where, naked, I stood next to a rusting old buoy. And I made it maybe an hour before I just passed out. And it's the first and last time I've ever passed out, hopefully the last time. I'm not a passing out, fainting couch, clutch the pearls kind of girl. And when I came to, Russ insisted on more shooting. And <laughs> of course he did. Photos. Of course he did. I mean, I looked as though I've been paid. And so the moral of the story is don't take diuretics in the middle of the desert. 
<laughs> I'll try. I'll be sure to remember that. <laughs> be sure to take a note. Oh my gosh. And then uh, I wanted to ask you too about, um, I saw some pictures of you as Betty Page, who's one of my favorite uh, pinups. How did that job come about? Was that through Playboy or how did that uh, happen? Oh, oh, I was Tura Santana. It, it's a Betty Page hair. That's right. It's a, it, but it was, I was Tura Santana and that was fun. So after I became a Russ Meyer girl, and I just like how my whole identity has been subsumed in the Russ Meyer girl part, but that truly was how people referred to me. I got all of these uh, job offers. I got all this work um, as a Russ Meyer girl. And so somebody was doing this big splashy hair show in New York City, and they flew me out there and they transformed me into Tura Santana. So it was great. I was downstairs in the, in the lobby first. I had some coffee. And then, and, and there was this cute waiter and I remember I was flirting with him, he was very cute. And then I went upstairs and they transformed me with the Betty Page hair and the Tura Santana makeup. And I mean, it was awesome. I was no longer blonde. I was this really sultry brunette and I swear it changed my personality. And I remember coming back downstairs and I had the same waiter. He had no idea who I was. So oh, we wow. went to, it was great. It was great. So we went, we did this hair show and uh, there was all this choreography. And I think at one point, one of my boobs fell out, but I think it was pretty, it was pretty okay because I'm sure that just about everybody there was gay. So I don't think they were all that. <laughs> they probably didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, really. Did you ever get really. to meet Tara Satana? I wish, I wish. I mean, she seems like such a badass lady, but you know, I don't think that Russ, uh, uh, ingratiated himself with anybody he didn't work with. Probably not. Yeah. Um, I happened to, uh, interview her one time at Comic-Con of all places. And I have this picture of us together. Of course, she's super stacked and I'm not, <laughs> let's put it that way. It's very funny picture of us. That is not true. Polar opposites. <laughs> It's a funny picture though, because I think I'm actually wearing a corset that really flattened me. And it, so it's a really funny picture. I'll have to post that with this podcast. Well, uh, so uh, before I let you go, this is the uh, Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. So of course I have to ask you, what are some of your own personal rock and roll nightmares? Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I got a few. So Here's one for you. Um, I was during the whole feature performer men's magazine modeling nightmare. I was living in Malibu, California with a guy I call Zach in my book, Stripped Down and Naked Memoir. And he was a Texas state champion, surfer and a stuntman, a black belt in karate. And he was also a compulsive cheater. And one night I was doing a private party for a bunch of coked up hedge fund managers. And these two girls showed up to be my starter act. Only I probably should have been there because they actually did a sex show together and one of them was a squirter. So Zach was mesmerized and so was every other guy in that place. And I might as well have not even been there. At the time, Zach got one of the girl's digits and started seeing her behind my back. And I only found out uh, when I discovered a condom wrapper and one of her trashy chandelier earrings wedged into the front seat of his truck. So you know, back then before I'd grown a woman's heart and soul and maturity, it was all about power tripping and head games. And what all the girls in the business are really looking for, I, I think, is a dildo for their vanity anyway. And so to make myself feel better, I put on a bikini and I took a stroll on the beach knowing I had a class and a pension. And I did. 
And this not bad looking guy came bounding out of his beach house and he looked kind of familiar, but I didn't know who he was. And then he said his name was Don Henley and that's when I finally recognized him. So, you know, some hours after that we hooked up and he was so bored. There was something about me, just didn't do it for him. And I certainly wasn't getting my yayas on. So we parted ways and I vowed to never do anything that horrible and squalid to myself ever again. So a few months later, I was at the Playboy Studios uh, doing a shoot and this beautiful girl came in to do my makeup and I mean beautiful. And she had all this wavy platinum hair and wasn't out of a bottle either, unlike mine. And she was clearly in pain. And I mean physical pain. She kept clutching her stomach and forgetting where she put the mascara. And I said, oh my God, are you okay? And she said, my boyfriend did some shit to me last night and now I'm bleeding really heavily. Now that's a really frank confession and I'm not sure I would have had the nerve to just put it out there like that, you know? Yeah. So I said, oh, what do you mean he did things? And she said, well, he stuck a shampoo bottle and then an umbrella up my, you know what? And I said, God, that's terrible. I said, why do you stay with him? And then she's very matter of fact about this, very pragmatic. She goes, oh, he pays my rent. It's like $1,000 because I have a basement apartment in Beverly Hills, but I think he's seen this other girl and I'm kind of a mess about it. And so I said to her, well, my God, what's his name? I want to know who to punch when I see him. And without missing a beat, she said, oh, I'm dating Don Henley. That's crazy. Yeah, he's, he's in the book, The Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories Edition. There you go. <laughs> yes. One night. I hear you're very litigious, so maybe yes. you and I could be named in the same law. <laughs> well, hey, I'm just going by public news reports, and he was actually arrested, so it's a matter of public record for something that he did. So we will have to read all about that in the True Stories edition. But um, I want to know. Now, what are you working on now, um, aside from Cappuccino, which people can see? Um, four but is it four days a week online and in they can subscribe in their newsletter um form and they get that right in their inbox um so which is a weird thing to say after just talking about don henley and what he does to inboxes but uh yeah right, right. <laughs> that was so a total crazy. accident i swear um so, <laughs> so basically what what are you working on now and where can people find your newest writings so right now I'm working on a novel about Mary Shelley, who was the author of Frankenstein. And I'm really excited about it because uh, I've been nerdy. Uh, I've always had this ravening interest in romantic poets. I have a lot of unseemly curiosities and that is definitely one of them. So I'm very excited about that. My uh, agent is wanting me to um, send her what I have and I don't think I'm quite ready yet, but I, I will be hopefully. And then I'm also, I've got my blog. And so I publish Monday through Thursday, and it's absolutely free. There is no paywall. And you can find me at uh, cappuccino.substack.com. Excellent. Well, thanks, Stacy. I really appreciate you joining me and sharing some of your stories with our listeners and um, hope to have you back on one day soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Stacy. All right. Thanks. As always, I'm going to close the show with an excerpt from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is from the 60s edition, and the story is Hell A Woman by Marco Manone. Lenny turned on the radio, already dialed to KABC, and No Time by the Guess Who was on, a band he actually didn't mind. 
Not bad for a bunch of Canucks, Lenny wrote during his Rolling Stones days before he and Jan had their infamous falling out. The upbeat yet ominous tune moved his mood needle toward less cantankerous, but only by a few notches. Traffic was coagulating ahead, as usual, making Lenny reach for his thermos filled with vodka OJ on ice. Driving in L.A. forces people to think whether they like it or not. During commercials, Lenny turned the volume down and was left to ruminate on the impending interview. Pamela Mercy, lead singer of the short-lived all-female band Angels Outrageous, was, for all intents and purposes, the next breakout star of this cursed decade. But then, poof, she disappeared like a ghost in the night. Rumors abounded, ranging from an alcohol-induced nervous breakdown to being kidnapped by an LSD sex cult. In fact, over the course of her year-long banishing act, the mystery behind Pamela Mercy overshadowed any of her fleeting musical stardom. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at rock and roll nightmares books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. And until next time. <laughs>